remember, I remember when I lost my mind There was something so pleasant about that place Even your emotions have an echo in so much space Welcome to episode 10, season 5 of the I Want to Believe podcast. I'm Nomar Slavik. I'm Kyle Sawyer. Kyle, we made it, buddy. We made it through another season of the podcast. We successfully changed platforms by moving to Anchor. At one point, I had actually thought I deleted every episode of every season. Thankfully, I did not. We even tried out a format change where Kyle hosted by himself and had a ton of fun. If you'll indulge me for a brief moment, I'd like to say that I think we were able to pull off a successful season five. I'm sure we'll do some more bonus episodes throughout the year, but until then, thanks so much for the support and for listening. Also, I really enjoy the grassroots nature of this podcast, so if you can, please share these episodes with your friends, coworkers, significant others, or anyone else who might enjoy. As for Kyle and I, we'll be here with an eye to the sky and our hearts filled with all things spooky. Enough of all that. We've got one last story to tell, an otherworldly story. Over the course of March 14th and 15th, 1975, members of the Baker family encountered a series of unexplained events. We'll let you know what happened in a moment. Before we jump into the episode, here's one last reminder that all of our I Want to Believe social media and email are in the show notes. My brand new book, We Only Come Out at Night, is now available for purchase. This book is a collection of short horror stories and can be found online at slubbickstore.company.site or at the Greenhand Bookshop in Portland, Maine. Just check the show notes for that link and more. All right, let's talk about something that was in the road. A chill morning in Mellon, Wisconsin. Quiet fields and quiet people. Yet something remarkable happened on the Mellon Town Road. Something that would have seemed incredible if it hadn't happened to people as down to earth as the town of Mellon itself. This episode's story is courtesy of Adam Benedict from the Pine Barrens Institute website. The setting, Wisconsin. The year, 1975. Benedict related a wonderfully detailed encounter from the small town of Mellon. While the story is fairly well known within ufology and the Wisconsin area, it's relatively unknown to the casual person with paranormal interests. 
The Pine Barrens Institute is doing great work in sharing the strange history of the state of Wisconsin, and we are excited to get this story out to our listeners. Benedict wrote, quote, Here at the Pine Barrens Institute, we're always on the lookout for the most bizarre and obscure folklore the state of Wisconsin has to offer. We want the stuff that nobody has ever heard of, the homespun stories and legends that you just can't stop thinking about after you are done reading them. We want the weird, the spooky, and the only told once and never again kind of stories that make you realize just how interesting the Midwest truly is." End quote. It all began in Wisconsin's Ashland County, and as stated before, the town of Mellon. Benedict writes that the area is known for its hiking trails, natural waterfalls, and pristine nature. But like most areas in the Midwest, and might I add the Northeast, there is much more to the small town than meets the eye. Quote, Within its borders, a rich history of strange and unusual legends, bizarre encounters with unknown creatures, and peculiar sightings of unexplained things, both in the sky and on the ground. Mellon, as you soon find out, proves without a doubt that appearances can be deceiving, and that just below a location's Mayberry surface typically rests a plethora of X-Files cases just ripe for the picking. End quote. We would like to share this story in its entirety, the exact words. The following is Benedict's article. The strange tale takes place over the course of two days, March 13 and 14, 1975. The time was 9 p.m., and the Baker family was beginning to wind down for the night. The six-member family, which consisted of Phil Baker, father, Shirley Baker, mother, Montgomery, 16, Jane, 15, John, 12, and Jeff, 11, all settled in to their respected roles and went about ensuring everything was completed before calling it a night. Philip Baker works in a mill on the same job for more than 20 years. He's grown up here and passed on to his children a love for the land, a love for planting and harvesting his own crops, for cutting wood to warm the house in the long Wisconsin winters. He was an officer in his union once, but stepped down because it meant too much time away from his wife, Shirley, and their kids. The most important things to the Baker family are hard work and being together. They were together the most incredible night of their lives. Mrs. Baker fiddled with some seed packets while Mr. Baker watched an episode of Harry O on TV. The boys tended to their evening chores inside while Jane was tasked with taking the two family cats out to the garage where they would stay until morning. It was during this routine task that the first member of the Baker family would take notice of something unfamiliar within their designated family bubble and would kick off the chain of events that happened next. I was carrying two cats. I was walking to the garage. And I got by this corner, right by the house here. And I looked, and there was this weird object, funny noises, and it was really bright, and I didn't know what I should do. As Jane was making her way from the house towards the garage, the family cats each tucked snugly under one arm. She caught sight of something odd sitting in the middle of the road. All actions up until that instant ceased, and the young girl stood frozen in her path, just staring ahead at the strange object standing motionless before her. The thing which Jane would later describe as a, quote, weird object making funny noises, end quote. 
was actually a silver-looking disc that emitted a silverish-white glow, was covered around the middle by a string of red and green-looking lights, and was making loud, high-toned noises. As the girl stood still, the cats grew restless, and soon she was pulled out of her frozen state and continued on with her task. As she did, though, she made sure to keep an eye on the strange craft sitting in the road in front of her home. So I was going back and forth, and finally I threw the cat in the garage. And then I ran to the house around the corner, and I couldn't get the door open. After the cats were safely locked in the garage, Jane peeked back out around the door to see if the strange silver object was still there. Seeing that it had not moved and remained in the same location, making the same noises and flashing the same red and green lights, the startled teen ran back towards her home and frantically yelled for her father. Sensing the urgency in his daughter's cries, Phil Baker jumped up from the sofa and ran out onto the small porch in his socks. There he met Jane who instantly yelled, Dad, there's something in the road. Immediately taking notice of what his daughter was worked up over, Mr. Baker re-entered his home, hurriedly put on his shoes and coat, and quickly headed back outside to figure out what was going on. Three of his children, Jane, John, and Jeff, followed closely behind him. Mrs. Baker and Montgomery stayed behind and instead ran up to the second level of the home and viewed the object from out of one of the home's windows. When I first saw it, I was standing approximately right here but I couldn't get too good of a view of it because the brush and the trees were in the way. We went over here to get a better look at the object that was sitting on the road. And my curiosity still wanted me to get a better view of it. So we walked down. Of course, the ground was covered with snow. My car was sitting here in the drive. As the four-member family team headed towards the unsettling object, the strange silvery white-colored light was beginning to dim. The red and green lights, which had once been flashing around the outside of the craft, had also ceased to function, but in their absence, a new action had begun. A strange banging sound began to emanate from the craft, but what was odd about it was that it didn't seem mechanical or structured in nature. This noise, it was said, closely resembled the kind of sound made by a person banging a hammer against metal. And to make the situation even more unsettling, the sound was reported as coming from inside the craft, as if something was in there and actively making it. Realizing that what they were moving towards could be dangerous, Mr. Baker told his three children to stay put and made it known that he alone would move closer to the object. Fearing for her father's safety, Jane urged Mr. Baker to not get any closer. But when he refused to stop and instead continued forward, the young girl made the decision to run back into the home and grab her mother for assistance. My two boys and my girl started to proceed here closer. My girl told me not to go any closer to it. Yeah, she ran back in the house. He was going to go walking up to it. and I went back to the house and told my mom that he was going to go up there and get closer to it. And she came out and she yelled at him. Uh, my wife came out and hollered at me and told me uh, not to be foolish and go any closer to it, not knowing exactly what the object was uh, on the road. And, of course, I did get a very good view of it from here, as there was no, nothing blocking my vision on the, on the road. When Mr. Baker was only within a few hundred feet of the strange craft, understanding the gravity of the situation and the potential danger that he may face, Mr. Baker moved back from the object, gathered up his sons, and headed back inside. 
When the Baker family were all safely back indoors, Mr. Baker quickly picked up the phone and called the local undersheriff, George Ree, for help in dealing with the situation at hand. As Mr. Baker was talking with Mr. Ree and bringing him up to speed on what was currently sitting in front of their home, a large boom, similar to that of an explosion, was heard by every member of the six-person family. Jane, assuming that the sound had something to do with the object out front, ran to the window to have a look. Grabbing the curtains in her hands, Jane tossed fabric aside and pressed her hands and face up to the glass, but she was met with nothing but darkness. The object was gone. Montgomery uh, was looking out the upstairs windows where he got his view uh, of the object. And we went in the house and we called the deputy sheriff. And when the deputy um, said hello, it was a boom and it was gone. I went out and I couldn't see it anymore. Even though the strange silver object was no longer present at the Baker property, under Sheriff Reese still made a trip out to the property to see what all the commotion was about and to see if any evidence was possibly left behind. While nothing substantial was found to prove that a craft had been there, the description given by all the members of the Baker family were consistent with one another. It was under Sheriff Reese's belief that the family was telling the truth. Something had been present outside their home and it was something that no one in the family had ever seen before. My name is George Ree, Mellon, Wisconsin. I am the undersheriff of Ashland County. On this night in question, I answered a complaint of Philip Baker, and I arrived at the site, and I investigated it, and I firmly believed that the Baker family did see an object. The official description given by Mr. Baker, the one member of the family who was closest to the object, is as follows. The object was silver in color and had a line of flashing red and bluish green lights running around it. Judging by the size of the snowbanks along the road where the object was resting, it was believed by Mr. Baker that the craft was roughly six feet high and had a diameter of around 12 feet. And of course, there were snowbanks on the side of the roads, and there's where I got my estimate of the size of the object, but also with the markings in the snow. The overall appearance was said to look similar to the profile of a turtle. It was uh, like a turtle. A square-like shape with rounded corners was present in the middle and was emanating a dull yellow-white light. It was believed that this shape was an open hatch of some sort. Mr. Baker stated that if he were to have moved closer at the time of the encounter, he believes he could have seen inside the hatch, but he removed himself from the area before he was able to do so. No noticeable legs were seen under the object. It was estimated by the family that the object was in front of their home for no more than 10 minutes. After talking within the family and taking the report, and because no evidence was found at the scene, Under Sheriff Free had no real need to remain at the Baker home. And, uh, of course, the undersheriff, I apologize when he left me off here because I thought, well, now we didn't find anything. He said, he'll think I'm, I'm a little off, too. And he said, no, no, don't forget, just forget about it. I said, well, just, I said, okay, let's forget about it. And I said, but don't tell anybody then. I, I, matter of fact, I even mentioned him. I said, don't tell anybody. I said, just, just forget it then. Because I said, I didn't, let's drop the whole story. Bidding the family good night, Ree got into his patrol car and drove roughly two miles to the Ashland and Iron County line in order to meet up with some of the other deputies from around the area. During their moment of collective downtime, the group of law enforcement officials chatted about their day, talked about what was happening in their respective counties, and discussed their individual experiences while working that night. For the most part, it was a standard night, except of course for the Baker family incident. 
That can be a pretty lonely feeling to have witnessed something incredible and be unable to produce evidence. Loneliest of all, perhaps, for the Baker children. They would want to tell their story to friends at school. But who would believe them? Well, Marty, my oldest boy, he was all upset. He says, told uh, my other two boys, now, don't say anything. Don't say anything to kids at school. We don't want nothing of this to get out. And, of course, Janie was in tears. She says, well, I know what I saw. She says, uh, you, you trying to tell me I'm, I'm crazy or something? She says, I know what we saw. She says, don't try to tell me I, I didn't see anything, because she said, I know I saw it. And she was in tears and everything else that night. With the lawmen altogether, George Ree attempted to explain the situation he had been called out to investigate. Other men in the group offered their input and provided their theories as to what could have occurred. But nothing really seemed to fit the profile exactly. With nothing concrete to go off of, the best answer any of the men could come up with was that the object might have really been a real UFO. And while it was all around strange, at least it was gone and nobody would really have to deal with it again. At least that's what they thought until lights appeared in the sky above them. It wasn't just one light either, but multiple lights. The UFO, it seemed, had come back, and this time, it brought friends. Sheriff Ree had good reason to believe Baker's story. He may have arrived at the Baker house too late to see anything there. But when he left, a second call came to investigate reported lights in the sky. Ree and seven deputies from two counties raced across country roads. Up in the sky above Ashland and Iron County, the group of lawmen watched as three strange lights moved through the darkness. Two of the objects appeared similar in color and size, while the third object was noted as being bigger and brighter than the others. This object, restates, moved faster than the others, changed colors, and even stopped in midair, hovering in place while the other objects moved towards it. Eventually, the objects began to move so quickly around the area and in such a bizarre way that the police radio channel began to go wild with calls and transmissions from other officers checking to see if anyone else had seen what they were seeing. It essentially became an open channel to verify that you weren't crazy and that there actually was something unexplained flying around in the sky. Later, when talking about the strange incident, George Ree said, quote, We saw one object come from the south, going in a northerly direction. There was a second one, and it was a little lower than the first. We watched these two for maybe half an hour. Then a third one came from the north, going south, and that was the lowest one of all. We could see different colored lights on it. That one stayed in the air for approximately 10 or 15 minutes, just moving, sort of doing a jig, going up and down, making a big U and going up and down again. We had two more cars on US-2 in the northern part of Ashland County, and I was transmitting to the deputies in that location. Two deputies were watching from a fire tower on Birch Hill, and another, Drolson, was northwest of them on Lake Superior, when one of these objects we were watching took off at a very high rate of speed. I radioed to Drolson and told them, it's going your way. All of a sudden, he said, I see it coming, and then his radio went blank, end quote. Sheriff Ree would sight a bright object darting in the sky, call on his radio for another car to intercept it, and the object would dart away, sometimes to briefly join another hovering in the sky. 
The deputy on Lake Superior, who was radioed by Ree, Peter Jolson, stated later in an interview about that night that he felt he was going to be the only one in the area who would not get a chance to see the strange lights that everyone on the radio was talking about. Sitting in his vehicle along the edge of the lake, the young deputy listened intently as his fellow officers made note of where the objects were and where they appeared to be moving. For the most part, they all appeared to avoid the area in which he was located, but when Ree urgently called for him to be on the lookout as one of the objects was coming his way, Jolson knew he had to get a good look. After acknowledging Ree over the radio, Deputy Jolson stepped out of his vehicle and looked into the sky. Within minutes, the entire area around him lit up in a brilliant light. Jolson said, quote, Everything got so bright I could have read a newspaper. I could see my shadow on the ground. End quote. One of Ree's deputies said the light given off by the objects was so intense he could read a newspaper by it. And when it passed over another patrol car, the police radio went dead. As the light quickly enveloped everything around him, Jolson yelled into his radio to report exactly what was happening. Strangely enough, though, none of the other officers were able to hear him clearly due to an unknown interference taking over the signal. At best, his fellow officers were only able to make out bits and pieces of words and sentences intermingled between moments of static and unexplained noises. In a moment that felt like forever to the young man, but in reality was only a few seconds, the light had turned the darkness around him into daylight, moved towards the other side of the road, and then took off yet again in an impressive burst of speed. The faint glow could be seen moving away until it eventually fell behind the trees and was visible to the officer no more. Trollson said of this moment, quote, it sounded like a big gust of wind coming through the woods. I was talking on the radio the whole time, but they only heard a part of my transmission. They heard me talking, then a whoosh, and then me talking again." End quote. With the strange object now gone from the area, the radio transmission returned to normal. Officers from around the two counties reported their locations to be clear and that no other lights appeared to be present. For hours, the sky was watched and nothing of interest was seen above them. But then, around midnight, a fourth light appeared in the darkness. This one didn't really move like the others and for the most part, just sort of hung around in the sky as if keeping an eye on things below. Knowing that there was nothing any of them could do, and since the object didn't seem to be doing anything itself, the officers packed it up and headed back to the station to end their night, still no closer to figuring out what any of them had witnessed. The next morning, on March 14th, the Baker family was waking up to begin their day. Still concerned and somewhat in shock by what they had all seen, 15-year-old Jane decided that she was going to look around the area to see if she was able to find any proof herself that something strange did in fact rest in front of their home. As she walked towards the road and looked around, the young girl nonchalantly glanced towards a swampy area that was located not too far from the Baker family property. At that moment, the teenage witness once again froze in her tracks just like she had the night before. For there, in the swamp, was the evidence she so desperately hoped to find. Only this time, though, the strange object was not on the ground, but rather it was hovering in the air over the trees. Keeping her eyes locked on the object, Jane began moving back towards the family home. She was determined to figure out what this thing was, but due to the cold Wisconsin morning, she first needed to grab her coat. 
When back inside, the young girl quickly put on her jacket and grabbed the family dog to come with her. The object, which was still hovering motionless in the sky, looked exactly the same as the one witnessed by the entire Baker family the night before. The only difference, though, was that none of the lights were on and none of the strange noises were able to be heard. At least, that is, no one with human ears could hear the sounds. As Jane and the dog made their way towards the swampy area, the loyal canine suddenly became agitated. Putting a hard stop on moving forward, the panicked pooch let out a loud yelp, placed its head down towards the ground, and began pawing at its ears. The object, it seemed, was still making noises, only this time they were so high-pitched that only the dog was able to hear them, and they caused such distress in the animal that Jane was forced to pick it up and carry it back inside the home. Once inside, the now skittish dog took off to hide somewhere in the house. Wanting to take care of her pet, but also wanting to see the object, Jane made the decision to venture back outside and head towards the swamp area alone. When she came back, the object was gone. No sound was heard and no evidence was left. It was as if it simply vanished into thin air. If she hadn't have seen it herself, she never would have believed it was even there. Disappointed, Jane headed back inside to tell her family what she had seen. Understandably concerned that the object may come back at a later time, the Baker family watched the area in hopes of spotting it again rather than be caught off guard. But the objects, it seemed, were done with both the Baker family and the city of Mellon, as they were never seen again. Mellon has a newspaper, The Weekly Record. Editor Jasper Landry knows just about everybody in Mellon by first name. I've known Mr. Baker for about 30 years, and uh, he and his family are, have been here a long time. And when this story broke on the UFOs, uh, he asked me not to put it in the paper because of the anxiety his family was being put through by callers and uh, uh, curiosity seekers. And uh, so I thought that I wouldn't. And uh, he was very appreciative. Uh, I honored his wish to not have it printed. The story got around anyway, of this country lane where the Baker family saw something big and metallic with red and green lights. Something that was gone almost as soon as it came. After the events of March 13th and 14th began to spread through the city, newspapers from around the area started to report the story. So intriguing and mysterious were the accounts given by both the Baker family as well as all the lawmen involved with the sighting that eventually a representative of the Center for UFO Studies, a research group founded by J. Allen Hynek in 1973, arrived in Ashland County to both interview research and categorize the entire experience. While no clear explanation could be determined for what the witness had seen, it was of the researcher's opinion that the Mellon UFO sighting should receive the official classification of CE2, a classification which is better known as a close encounter of the second kind. While the Mellon UFO sighting of 1975 remains a little-known drop in the gigantic bucket of UFO sightings from the 1970s, it is worth noting that the event did shine front and center for a little while in the public consciousness. So intriguing was the event that Leonard Nimoy's show, In Search Of, made the brilliant decision to include the sighting in the show's excellent first season in 1977, 
episode 21 to be exact. Included amongst other episodes which focus on Bigfoot, the Bermuda Triangle, the Loch Ness Monster, and ghosts, we feel there's no better way to preserve this moment of not only strange 40 in history, but also bizarre Wisconsin history as well. To this moment, no one knows what it was that George Ree and seven county policemen chased that night in Wisconsin. And that brings us to the end of the story and of our season. Season 5, we were back with a bang. Kyle Sawyer back in the building. And now we're leaving the building? And now we're leaving the building. (laughs) Thanks so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks, everybody who takes the time out of your day to spend a little time with us. I'm no more Slavic. I'm Kyle Sawyer. So last week, these aliens walked up to me, said you're coming with us, and abducted me. A ship flew over my head with a suction beam, and pulled me off of my feet reluctantly. Next thing I knew, the ground had disappeared. I was on the table, two of them were sitting near. One walked over, leaned down and said, listen here. We come from a different time and a whole different year. A different world and a whole other galaxy. From your species' very inception, we've been dabbling. We've witnessed the greed, incompetence and savagery. You're some of the strangest beings we've come across and are traveling. St. Leo's song, Miet. Number 10. This is a cool story. I don't know if you've heard this one. Bizarre encounters with unknown creatures and peculiar sightings of unexplained... Unexplained. The strange tale takes place. (laughs) Already fucking up. Included amongst other episodes... I'm going to restart that sentence again. When the Baker family were all safely back indoors, Mr. Bakley... (laughs) Mr. Bakley... (laughs) Why would I say it twice? I don't know. Just took to nah. and oh, nah. <laughs> or at the Green Hen Bookshop. <laughs> I'm laughing. Now. This this is why I say shut up. It's the same one every episode. You should just reuse it. Shut up. That's what all podcasts do. They do not do that. No, no. They do. They do not. I, re- I will never believe it. I know you won't because you refuse to do anything that might save you a tiny bit of, <laughs> of work. Shut up. This is the I Want to Believe podcast. <laughs> I don't know. Something like that. That's it, buddy. We did it. For a while, man, I was in a daze by the very thought of aliens. I've always been amazed, but I couldn't think straight. I was lost in his gaze. His giant eyes filled with what looked like inner space. What do you want from me? I questioned him. He reached out his hand, said no need for questioning. Your species is in grave need of rescuing. This is our attempt at savior, so let's begin. He leaned forward, pressed his hand to my face, and at first I thought I was having hallucinations. The room twisted, light was running through the place, and next thing I knew, I was in a completely new location. I heard his voice say this is the year 2030. I was in a city, the skies above were very murky. It looked like the world had been through an apocalypse. Buildings had smoke rising, crumbling and dropping bits. He spoke again, the future you see will ensue. The greed and ignorance of your kind is spilling through. Most of what you've been taught to believe isn't true. But with our help, a better future is still in view. This system you're living in is broken. And the masses need to be awoken. The powers of your leaders need to be revoked. And the time has come for a real change to be put in motion. Suddenly the scene went black and I was in my bed. Opening my eyes, his voice still ringing in my head. All I could hear was the very last thing he said. Return to Earth and see that the message is spread. 